the fall always brings new faces, right? And um, new people into the community. And so before I go into our word for today, which is going to be based out of Matthew 24, um, beginning in verse 3, and through, through verse 14, that's going to be the crux of our word. I want to give like a five to seven, and I am going to limit myself to that. Five, I'm looking at the clock right now. Um, just some context, because we're going to talk about the word of God, but what we're actually going to talk about today is actually uniquely and intimately associated with our community and specifically our calling as a community. And so it's really important that you, as much as it could be a broad stroke um, to hear this word, and it's a, a word that applies to the body of Christ, but to the people that call Hilltop home, or if you may be somebody that is going to assimilate into this community, it, I'm going to give you a little bit of context and understanding about like our origins and our identity, but then we're going to transition into Matthew chapter 24 and go through the rest of the text. Um, so in five to seven minutes, um, as a high schooler, when I would study American history, um, but even specifically revival history, if you haven't studied it, you should, because even if you're only here for a short period of time, New England is a land of rich, rich revival history. So as a young teenager, when I began, and I'm going to just throw some things out to you, I'm not going to go into great detail, you should look them up and you should read them on your own. Um, John, John Winthrop, when he was aboard the Arabella, he wrote something called The Model for Christian Charity. God gave this man a vision of basically Christian community and what it could look like. And in that, he basically penned and wrote out that we are to be a city set upon a hilltop and a light, or I, I say hilltop because that's our name, <laughs> a city set upon a hill <laughs> and a light to all peoples. And so he was speaking of the whole origin and reason for their, their coming, why they were sacrificing so greatly and what it was unto, that it was unto a greater purpose. So it was from reading the original writings of uh, Governor John Winthrop, but it was also from reading the revival history of the first and second great awakening. If you haven't read any, you should just look a little up. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, I feel like anybody that reads revival history, they have like one of those preachers that just strikes a chord in their heart and that they latch onto. For me as a teenager, it was Jonathan Edwards. And it was when I read A Humble Attempt, you should read that document as well. But ultimately God gave this man a vision of an extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. He began dreaming this dream for New England. Now, mind you, Governor Winthrop, when he's aboard the Arabella, and Jonathan Edwards have no way of knowing what Boston and New England will become. They have no way of knowing that it will become an epicenter for education. They have no way of knowing that the nations of the earth will literally come to this geographical location and that the dreams that God's placing in their heart, that they very tangibly can be realized. You have to think about in the day and the time that they lived regarding communication and travel and all of those things, the challenges to advancing the gospel. So it was these two men in my high school years that I began being awakened to the fact that God had a dream in his heart and he put it in the hearts of men. 
And so as a 16, 17-year-old girl, I began saying, I want to see God's dream come to pass. God gave these men a dream, and I want to live to see that dream fulfilled. My heart began burning for New England. But then if you kind of fast forward a little bit, I was uh, in my early 20s, and I ended up coming across an abandoned college campus. It was an abandoned college campus. That college campus, through a series of events, I will spare you, the Lord began to highlight and speak to me about researching and looking into it. I ended up finding out that this abandoned college campus is literally the well, and it's the root for the missions movement that was birthed out of Massachusetts. This college campus is where Adonai and Jetson, if you don't know those names, and Anne Hazeltine, look them up. They were the first missionaries that went to Burma, India. Not only that, this college campus had ties to Williams College, where the Haystack Revival broke out. And it was out of that, and the fruit of that was the first student mission-sending movement that happened out of Massachusetts. But then if you fast forward a little bit and you begin to study, and I'll spare you the details, but the Lord led me on a longer journey of realizing the connection of John Armott to Massachusetts and him coming to commemorate the 100-year anniversary of the first missionaries being sent and him calling for a new student volunteer missions movement. So I was kind of led on this journey of praying over this abandoned college campus of God giving me promises, very specific dreams and visions of what he would do to preserve it, how he would preserve it, and what it would be unto. That was a very long journey for me from the time I was 22 to uh, I think by the time the college was secured, I think I was 28 or 29, I think, Um, all during that time, just the kind of the Lord speaking. But I'm sharing with you all this today because there's a couple things I want you to understand. First and foremost, God gave me very specific words and promises about another student volunteer missions movement that would come out of New England. At that point in time, my husband and I had actually planted a church with my mother in Haverhill. We were working with the poor and the destitute. That it was, I, I won't get into all the details, but prostitutes, addicts, it was the poor and the destitute, which led me personally on a journey to working with foster care because every single prostitute I worked with, it would always come down to the fact that they were raised in a broken home or they were in the system. They were raised in the system. And so more and more, I began to see that these addicts and these prostitutes and these people, that if someone had intervened in their childhood, if somebody had grabbed a hold of these kids when they were young, the possibility of homelessness and addiction and what we see, potentially we could even curb that if we go after these children. So it kind of led us on this like whole journey. But in the midst of that, before I was asked to come start the House of Prayer here at Harvard or Cambridge specifically, I was in Redding, California. And when I was in Redding, California, this prophet came up to me And when he, I'd never met him before. He was from California. He was on staff there at Bethel. And when he came up to me, he said, have you ever heard of a place called Bradford College? That was the name of the abandoned college campus I had been praying over for all of those years. Have I ever heard of Bradford College? I began weeping. Then he looked me straight in the eyes. You know, his eyes weren't closed. He wasn't trying to like fish for a word in the sky and look for something or trying really hard. He just looked me straight in the eyes and he said, you have eyes for the nations of the earth. And he said, the place where you stand, Bradford College, is the crossroads for revival to the nations of the earth. 
You know what he went on to say? He said, as you see an awakening on the college campuses of Boston, it will be a catalyst for the student volunteer missions movement that you've seen in your spirit. I'll spare you the details, but when he gave me that word, I heard everything about Bradford College. I heard everything about student volunteer missions. He had a lot of other components in there about prayer and compassion and all of the other things that were in my heart. What I did not hear was the college campuses. Didn't hear it at all. Fast forward to 2005 when Lou asked me to plant the house of prayer here, and I said no emphatically three times. It was when I I decided to do a three-day water fast. And I said, if you don't speak to me, God, I can't do this. And I'm not doing this. Did a three-day water fast. When I did the three-day water fast, God said to me, go back to the word I gave you in Reading. Like, kind of like, I've already spoken to you. You've been spoken to. (laughs) You have direction. You have clarity. Just go back to what I said. I went back to the word, and it was the first time I heard, as you see awakening on the college campuses of Boston, it will be a catalyst. It was the first time that I was like, Oh, this is why Lou is asking me to plant a house of prayer in Cambridge, Harvard, MIT. It all began to make sense. So fast forward, we plant the house of prayer. I'm at the house of prayer and the college campus is still vacant. I'm still wondering what the Lord is going to do. In the midst of that, this whole journey of John Armott and student volunteer missions movement, one day I'm sitting in the prayer room early in the morning and I, I, there was a book by John Armott that I was going to order for a friend. And I, I had no monies, like no, no, no monies, living by faith completely. And so I said to the Lord, I can't afford to buy a book for me and a book for my friend, but I'm determined to sow this into the life of my friend. I said, if this word about John Armott and what you're going to do at Harvard is true, would you provide a book for me? That's simply all I asked the Lord. Kind of like, I'm not going to make this for, do this for myself. If it's you, would you confirm your word and would you provide a book for me? That very day, I went to the post office. We had a P.O. box for the house of prayer. When I went there, there was a package. And when I got the package, I assumed it was promo material or something for the call. When I opened up the package that very day that I asked the Lord to provide a book for me, (laughs) I got the book, Students in the Modern Missionary Crusade, and it's actually the Nashville Convention of 1906. It's filled with all of the sermons, all of the teachings, all all that transpired at that Nashville Convention. And for those of you that don't know, that was John Armott. And ultimately, the book that I sewed in the life of a friend, I got something like, way better, (laughs) like way better. So when I opened, and do you remember what I asked the Lord? I asked the Lord to confirm his word to me and with his word about John Armott was true. Um, Inside the book is written, Dear Bethany, I believe that you will be used to dig the wells of John Armott. May the Ivy League schools be for the healing of the nations. Our love and our prayers are with you always, Lewin Therese Engel. That was in September of 2007. You know, he referenced something in here that some of you may have not heard before, but he referenced in here that the Ivy League schools would be for the healing of the nations. And what had happened was, is in 2006, when we were planting the house of prayer, it was like toward the end of it. And um, I don't know what any of you guys think about starting a nonprofit or starting a church or starting a ministry. None of it's fun. (laughs) It's all faith-filled. You're just obeying at some points. You're just doing it with like a... A grit in your teeth and Jesus, you said, so here I go. Like, we're just going to trust you with the details. I won't say it's not fun. It's fun to partner with God, but it's hard not knowing any of the details. (laughs) It's toward the end and Lou would get up and announce like every single night, Bethany's starting a house of prayer. Where is that going to be? I don't know yet. 
Like, <laughs> Bethany's starting a house of prayer. Do you have a team? I don't have one yet. <laughs> and then whenever you would announce it, I think Bethany's starting a house of prayer and she's got no money. Bethany's starting a house of prayer. She's got no team. Bethany's starting a house of prayer. She's got no place to pray. His team, they sustained 24-7 for 40 days and it was phenomenal. It was glorious. It was amazing. They were all getting ready to leave the city. And toward the end, I thought, what am I doing? I don't even want to be in Cambridge. I want to be in Haverhill. We have a church plant. I have a heart for the homeless. Why am I here? (laughs) And again, I said to the Lord, would you confirm your word to me? The next day, one of the prophets that work with Lou stood up in the evening session and he said, Bethany, I had a dream for you last night. And he stood up and he said, I saw a sea of young people, young adults. And they had welts on the temples of their head. He said, and in the dream, I asked the Lord, I was like, what are those welts on their head? And he said, I heard the voice of God say to me in the dream, it's poison ivy on the mind of a generation. And he said, the Ivy League universities were meant to be the leaves of healing for the nations of the earth. And instead, they've poisoned the mind of a generation. But the Lord went on to say in this dream, but I will once again cause light and glory to come out of the Ivy League universities. So I was like done right there, right? You get a dream like that, I'm like, okay, sign me up. I guess I'm doing this, like, I'm staying. Not because of any other reason other than God gave a promise and God gave a word. I wanted to share that with you today because we're gonna actually open up um, to Matthew verse 24. That testimony went longer than it was supposed to. Precisely like 15 minutes longer than it was supposed to. Um, Matthew chapter 24, verse three. Now, As he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came came to him privately saying, tell us when will all of these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceive you for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all of these things must come to pass. Read that with a smile. (laughs) See that you are not troubled, for all of these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. All of these things are the beginning of sorrows. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. 
This passage of scripture, we could preach for days, but we won't. You can go home and meditate upon it this week. But what I want to, uh, number one highlight is in verse 14, where it says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world. Can you say all of the world? That's all of the world. (laughs) As a witness to all the nations, And then the end will come. Do you hear what he is saying? What Jesus is articulating here is that before Jesus returns, you never have to wonder, like, is he coming back tomorrow? Really, kind of. Because all of the world has not yet been evangelized. There's still unreached people groups. Do you know that? There's still places where the gospel has not been preached and there's no access to the gospel. But Jesus gives this promise and he says that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world to all nations and then the end will come. I wanna say something to you friends. If you're wondering kind of what your part is in the world at this time, it's to be part of preaching the gospel to all people and all nations. I I understand that we have a a, a very vast, broad section of people here today in very different places. I understand that. So I understand there's some of you that are like, I'm in no condition to preach anything to anyone. I think I need it preached to me. That's totally fine. I am here today to give you vision of what we are called to. I am here to give you vision of what you are called to. Not just us as a corporate body that you can stand by as a spectator and watch us fulfill the Great Commission, but that you can take part in in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I actually love... um, For those of you guys that have read the book, um, Systematic Theology by Wayne um, Gruden, he says, do Christians in fact eagerly long for Christ's return? The more Christians are caught up in enjoying the good things of this life, and the more they neglect the genuine Christian community and deep intimacy with Jesus, the less they will long for his return. To some extent, the degree to which we actually groan for Christ's return is a measure of the spiritual condition of our lives right now. So if you wanna know your spiritual condition, just begin to look at how much do you groan for the return of Christ? How much, you know, my little 12 year old, he gets devastated because around our house, a constant thing I'll say is come quickly, Lord Jesus. Like if I read the news, come quickly. And he'll say all the time, mom, don't pray that. (laughs) Or I'll say, Maranatha, come quickly. And he's like, mom, can you wait to pray that till I like get married and have kids? Like he's like looking for, he's like, and you can almost see, he almost thinks like as I'm praying it, the the sky is gonna split right there. Like, ha, stop saying that. But I love the way he articulates this. He ultimately says that if we're not groaning for the return of Christ, it's because we're so comfortable here that we've made this world our home instead of longing for our home. But the reason, this isn't even the crux of our message today, the reason that I want to tie this in and help you understand this longing for eternity is I'm gonna say this to you, friend. Our longing for eternity and our longing for the return of Christ will be directly to re- be related to our passion for souls. 
Because most of us here right now, over the past two years, when the world was burning, right? As long as we had our stockpile of groceries from the grocery store and Netflix, will there be electricity so I can watch my Netflix? Okay, all the world can go to hell as long as I'm okay in my house. That's the way most of us Americans live. I'm getting messages from food banks that we work at or work with saying, we've been told there's gonna be a shortage of food, that Thanksgiving we can't hand out the 300 or the other from Lowell, that they're not gonna receive any food like they have every single year. And then when I begin calling other pastors and saying, what are, what are we gonna to do to prepare and what are we gonna to do to give? To, like, I'm not thinking I need to make sure I feed my family. I'm thinking, how do I feed other people? And I can't tell you how many people I talk to. They're like, I don't know, people are gonna to have to work that out. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, no, no, we as the church need to begin to come to a place of being troubled by the afflictions of others. And I'm gonna tell you something, more than putting food in the belly of a person, we should be troubled over the greatest affliction, which is separation from Christ. Friend, when we look at our neighbors, if the thought that comes to mind is not, how can I share? How can I show? How can I bring Jesus to the people that are surrounding me? It shows us that we have missed the mark on what it is that we're called to do. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is the Great Commission. Um, in verse 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This right here is our calling, friends. And this is what I want you to understand about our calling. Revelations 5, 9 through 10 says, um, in verse nine, it says, and they sang a new song singing, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation and have made us priests to our God and we shall reign with him forever. Do you hear the language of every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation? Revelation seven, nine through 10. After these things, I looked up and behold a great multitude which no one could number, all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Revelations 14, six through seven. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who has made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. This is what I want you to hear. First and foremost, the first passage of scripture is that our calling is clear. You don't have to question what our calling is. It's to preach and proclaim the gospel. But number two, I want you to hear is that it's an invitation to all without partiality. And this is, I'm gonna share just a very brief story with you 
When we were coming to plant here in Cambridge, I told you my whole background was with the homeless and with foster care and advocacy for churches to take on foster care, working with prostitutes, all of that. When I came to Harvard, I'm gonna, I'm sorry if I offend any of you. My attitude is I don't really care about the educated and the elite. I'm sharing with you my partiality here. My compassion was for the poor and the broken and the destitute. I didn't have compassion for the students. Because I'll be honest with you, I know now like the big buzzword is like privilege, like who's got privilege, who's privileged, privileged. That's all I saw when I, I thought of Harvard. I thought, come on, like, please. Like you're the most privileged of anybody. Somebody else go there. I want to go to someone that no one will go to. But I want to tell you something. This is where God broke in. I rem I'll never forget, it was my first time at Harvard. I'd never visited there. I had used to have friends that would come from all over the world and they'd like take a day trip to Harvard because they were intellectuals. They're like, I'm going to Harvard. I'm like, that's cool, I'm not interested. So like when I came to plant the house of prayer, I was like, I should probably prayer walk Harvard. <laughs> Here we go. Prayer walked Harvard, I'm gonna tell you something. When I first got, all I saw was homeless people in Harvard Square and sat and talked to the old man and the young woman. And, and as that's where my heart was. That, I was broken over that. And I even thought, how can you take the wealthiest, the most intellectual, and then right here at our gates, we have such depravity and brokenness. That's what I thought. And I'm gonna tell you something. Prayer walked Harvard, still thought, I wanna go back to the prostitutes, Jesus. That's where I have compassion. I don't have compassion for these people. Do you know what happened? I'll never forget the man I saw. I'll never forget where I was. I looked over at the Harvard gates, looked over and saw a man, homeless man, asleep, like I'm sure he was in a drunken stupor, on a bench. You know what the Lord said to me so quickly? Brought me right back to reality. He said, I see no difference. I see no difference. Do you understand what, that, what God is saying? He's saying, we judge by the outward and we think that somehow because you have family, you have education, you have money, you have all of these things, that somehow you're in a different class. And then we look at the poor and the destitute and all of these systems where they can't get out of and we think you are deserving of compassion. You are deserving of mercy. I'm gonna tell you something here, friends. I don't care how you judge society. I don't care how you judge the educated and the uneducated, the black and the white, the poor, the rich. I don't care how you do because ultimately what the word of God says is there's only one dividing line. And when he comes, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. You're one or the other. You're either a sheep and you claim his name and you know him or you're a goat. I'm going to say this to you, friends. As the church of Jesus Christ, we have to be delivered from classifying all the peoples. These are the people I feel compassionate for. These are the people I have mercy for. I'm going to tell you something. You don't have the heart of God yet until you can understand that regardless of the individual, without Jesus Christ, they're all wretched. They're all blind. They're all poor. That is the greatest disparity, is someone without the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And any person 
that has not yet been introduced to Jesus, it should invoke nothing but mercy and compassion and brokenness in our lives. He shows no partiality. And the reason I want to highlight this to you is I've been a part of all different worlds. I've been a part of the domestic missions where we do all city reaching with the poor and the homeless. I've been a part of unreached people groups missions where the the unreached is who we're going after and we don't have a heart for America. You know, I've been on on all the, the levels of it. And this is what I want to tell you. God's heart is for all people. And so this is what I, I, I want to present to you, friends, is that we as a community are called to be a missionary sending. What We're not necessarily called to build a nice country club for you to come and enjoy and you to get your relax on. We're called to train and disciple, raise up ministers, church plant, see another missions movement. But can I tell you something? That does not mean the unreached out there who we can't see. So it's super easy to romanticize. That means the person on the streets of Cambridge. That means the person inside the Harvard gates and the person outside the Harvard gates. And so this is what I want to present to you as a community of people. That this is our calling as a community. Is number one, to be preaching the gospel. Number two, that we would present the gospel and burn for the gospel to be preached without partiality. And lastly, I'm going to close with this, almost on time. (laughs) Lastly, that our calling is without condition, that it's not conditional. If you look at the first passage that I shared with you out of Matthew 24, what do you find? Before he says, and this gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Before that, he lays out. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and they will kill you, and you'll be hated. And then they will be offended, and you'll be betrayed, and you'll hate one another. I mean, he's like laying out the worst conditions possible. And he's not saying, because it's going to be so hard and so hostile, go hide in your homes. Because it's going to be so difficult, just look for a way of escape. He's saying that in the midst of these conditions, the gospel will be preached in all the world. I want you to hear this, friends. Because ultimately what we need is a people that do not shrink back in the face of adversity. We need people that are not looking for the optimal conditions in order for them to obey the great commission. But we find here it's under hostile and difficult conditions that the gospel will be preached. And then you actually find in Matthew chapter 5, I'm closing here. In Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16, we are all familiar with this passage of scripture, or you should be if you're a part of Hilltop and the glare. This is where I always go wrong with this. Um, Matthew, yeah, 5, 13. For you, are our salt of the, for you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its fa- flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing, but to be thrown <clears throat> and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they hide a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Ultimately, he is calling, this is the calling of the church to be salt and light. Not to hide our light, but the reason I want to emphasize to you that our calling is without condition is right before this, you guys are all familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Right before he calls us to be salt and light and the preaching of the gospel, he's finishing the whole Sermon on the Mount with that you will be hated for my name's sake. You will be persecuted. He's laying out, it almost mirrors the same language of Matthew 24 and saying that even in these conditions, the gospel will not only preach, but it will be triumphant. So I, I mentioned to you guys my little handy dandy book here from the student volunteer convention. I actually just want to read you guys a couple quotes in closing. These are by John Armott. This is not one continuous quote. I piecemealed it. So <laughs> like meaning I could stop at everyone and I will for clarity's sake, but I just kind of extracted some thoughts that John Armott had. Um, it is the unmistakable duty of Christians to evangelize the world in this generation, end quote. It is absurd to assume that the Christian church does not possess the requisite ability and consecration to accomplish such an undertaking, which is obviously in accordance with the desires and the purposes of Christ, end quote. In all the hard, persevering labor to which we must give ourselves, not least must be the work of intercession. It is only when we come to look upon our prayer as the most important method of work, as an absolute triumphant method of work, that we shall discover the real secret of the largest achievement in the missionary enterprise. End quote. A body of free men who love God with all their might and yet know how to cling together, could conquer this modern world of ours. And I'm gonna to read to you This was the opening for their <clears throat> convention. What was necessary to see the world evangelized in their generation? a spirit of teachableness. Let my mind be hospitable to truth. A spirit of helpfulness. What wilt thou have me to do? A spirit of intercession. This is the most urgent need for these days of our vision and opportunity. A spirit of expectancy. As we have a great God with inexhaustible resources, let us also have great faith. A spirit of magnanimity, let me <clears throat> rise above petty fault finding and become absorbed with the great interest of the kingdom. A spirit of hopefulness, it is possible to become stronger when I am now weakest. A spirit of humility, it is possible that I might become weakest where I am now strongest. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your task. I wanted to read that to us too as a community today because obviously I'm setting out before us what our calling is as a community, which is to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel without partiality and to preach the gospel without conditions. 
But I want to present to you, I understand that there's a lot of different lives that are lived in this room today. There's some of you that after a message like this, and just because of your background and your history, you burn to go on the mission field. Immediately, it's kind of like, yes, this is my life and my calling. I wish I was on the mission field right now, and I'm not. But there's also some of you in this room today that as we're talking about the preaching of the gospel, you yourself have not yielded your life to the lordship and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That you yourself need a true salvation and conversion experience in order to give your life in abandonment to the preaching of the gospel. So we have a, a vast array of lives that are presented here today. But this is what I want us to do in closing. I'm going to pray for us. And ultimately what I want us to do is just build an altar before the Lord. I want to say this to you, and this is why I closed with John Armott's words there, is number one, there is no condition in your life that disqualifies you. Meaning you might right now be inactive and immobile, but there's a place where God wants to breathe hope into your heart that where you are today is not where you have to be tomorrow and next week and next year. That as you hear the word of God and the call to preach the gospel, that God is giving you an invitation to come out of your apathy, to come out of your cycles of sin, to come out of your, your self-focus, and to begin to have eyes for the world that is around you. To begin to increase your capacity for compassion and mercy for the loss that is around you. I'm going to say something to you, friend. If you call yourself a believer today and your heart is not for the lost, you have yet to encounter the saving, delivering power of Christ. If all you're doing is focusing on yourself and your own brokenness, there you're going to live in a perpetual cycle of defeat. But what God wants to do is he wants to deliver you. He wants to set you free. He wants to set your feet upon a firm place. So there's none of us that are in here today that are disqualified. See, this is the greatest strategy of the enemy in our generation is number one, constantly separating us from one another. Living in accusation, living in offense in all of these places. But can I just say to you, friend, I hope all of you today can have your mind washed. And when I say your mind washed is that if we have Jesus Christ, I don't care what hardship. I don't care your family origin. I don't care the mental history in their past. I don't care if you came from poverty. I don't care if you had no education. I don't care if you're of a minority. With Jesus, you have everything that you have need of. He is the exception. And I don't care, friend, if you have had every advantage in life. If you are without Jesus, you are at the disadvantage. See, the way that we define justice and injustice in our generation is all askewed. Because we're not basing it upon the inward man and the eternity of our souls. And instead, we're basing it all upon conditions. But Jesus, when he steps in, he breaks all the boundaries. He makes all the barriers. He breaks all the opposition. And he makes us a life brand new. So friend, today, whether you feel ultra qualified, it's a dangerous place. Or if you feel 
disqualified. My question to you, do we truly believe that Jesus is our only hope? Do we believe that he is our only hope for Cambridge? Do we believe that he is our only hope for Harvard? Do we believe that Jesus is our only hope for the teenage population that surrounds us, that are drowning in social media, in sexuality, in confusion, in perversion? There's no man-made solutions for that. The solution is Jesus. And so I hope today that you are reminded that this is your great calling is to bring Jesus to a lost and a dying world without partiality and without condition. So this is what we're gonna do. We'll have some of the core team come up and be available to pray for anybody that would like prayer. But then the other part, the more front of the altar, we're just gonna create an altar before the Lord. If there's anybody here today that you're like, I don't need prayer, but I know I want to lay my life down before Jesus. I want to come out of where I've been and I want to give my life and sign up my life for the proclaiming and the preaching of the gospel. Father, I thank you for this community of people. Lord, we thank you, Father, for your mercy and your grace. We thank you, Father, for your compassion. And Lord, we ask God that you would raise this up. Lord, as a a community that displays the beauty and the majesty and the strength of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would boldly proclaim the gospel to all peoples, whether it be the Harvard student or the homeless man, whether it be someone that we can identify with in their life experiences and even trauma, or whether it be someone that is completely and utterly from a different place in life and history, God, we say, Lord, give us your heart for humanity. Give us your heart for the lost. And God, we pray, Father, that we would be a part of seeing the gospel preached to the ends of the earth before your return. So the altar is open. We're here to pray for you. Um, just some practical things before we close and we open the altar officially. Um, we have a bake sale going for our youth. We're trying to send them to a conference in November. We're trying to get all their expenses paid. And I think we got anywhere between 15 to 20 youth going with us out to Utica, New York. Um, short story, my life, my wife's life was encountered at this very conference uh, that we're going to. And we're praying that many of the youth that we bring will be encountered by Jesus in a very powerful way as well. So anything you buy over that bake sale helps them get to that conference. And then again, if you're new here for the first time with us, and then you're like, I love this place. I mean, I, I just got to sit down and I love everything about this church. And I, I, I may be like the wrong person to say that given that I'm the pastor, but I, 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 I deeply believe that if I was not pastoring this church, I would attend this church. Sure, without a doubt, hands down, this would be home. And I imagine there's some of you here today that feel maybe that same way. Well, we have the info center open. That's just a place where we wanna connect new people here and get you um, quickly connected to this uh, community of faith. Friends, we love you. Have a great week. Altar is open. Anybody who wants to come for prayer, come. Uh, but we'll officially dismiss and end our service today. Amen. Have a blessed day.